I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Anoush Chakelian and I'm joined by my colleague Alva Ray this week because Stephen's having some well-deserved time off to discuss Boris Johnson's Racial Inequality Commission and you ask us what's going to happen to the Gender Recognition Act. So we woke up on a Monday morning to our favourite treat, which is a Telegraph column by Boris Johnson. Remember those? They used to be a pretty regular feature of our politics coverage. But this week he's written about the protests that that have been happening over the weekend and previous weekends, condemning the actions of far-right activists, but also giving a sort of impassioned, very throat-clearing, bloviating, Boris Johnson-style defence of the statues debate obviously coming down on the side of wanting to protect the statues from being pulled down and suggesting that to try and remove some of these monuments would be akin to sort of photoshopping Britain's history or a politician tweaking their Wikipedia page to make themselves sound better, which doesn't sound like the best defence to me, especially considering (laughs) Dominic Cummings was accused of changing or at least adding references to his own blog about coronavirus. So I thought that was quite an odd <laughs> an odd metaphor to use. But hidden within this piece, kind of in, in two throwaway sentences, was an announcement that the Prime Minister wants to do a commission into racial inequality in this country. And that's pretty much all we knew from it. There was another Telegraph report alongside it that, that had clearly been given a briefing of what, what this would be. And it's called the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities. Alva, you wrote about this this morning. Do you know anything else about about what this commission is likely to cover? No, and I'm not sure if the government really does either. As you say, the, it was a, a sort of throwaway comment in the context of an op-ed about something completely different or something adjacent, the Winston Churchill statue. And then the, the Telegraph report separately really just sort of said that it would have an independent chair and would report directly to the Prime Minister and that it would cover all manner of of inequality, (laughs) which sounds great. Like they've really thought it through. (laughs) Yeah, I think David Lammy accused it of just being written on the back of a fag packet yesterday Mm. to try and assuage 
the Black Lives Matter protesters, which I don't know, how, how fair does that assessment sound to you? This is what I've been struggling with slightly because I really don't want to be partisan in in my political coverage. And when the government are doing good things, I want to be open-minded and free to acknowledge that. And so I find it sort of uncomfortable or like a bit cliche for the new statesman if I just find that I can like completely agree with the Labour approach on a particular thing. And I think in this case, I just completely do. As I wrote this morning and as David Lammy said really, really powerfully on the Today programme in the 810 interview this morning, yeah, he, he was making the case that, you know, there have been at least seven reports and reviews and commissions in recent years into different aspects of racial inequalities in the UK and most of them haven't had their recommendations implemented so he's obviously now the the shadow justice secretary on the labor front bench but he also led the Lamy review into racial inequalities within the justice system so he is a great authority on this and he made 35 specific recommendations in the review in 2017 and they haven't been implemented there are also, you know, hundreds of recommendations into another review into deaths in police custody. There are recommendations in the Home Office review into the Windrush scandal. Those haven't been implemented. Other, you know, recommendations into workplace discrimination. Boris Johnson is literally sitting on a pile of oven-ready recommendations that he just <laughs> hasn't that he just hasn't bothered to to use. Like there's, there's no way of looking at this unless you sort of look in passing and aren't following this story very closely. There's no way of looking at this except as a sort of attempt to to kick this issue into the long grass. And again, as, as I wrote this morning, I think it's like particularly bad and particularly poignant because there are new recommendations coming out from Public Health England mm. about the disproportionate numbers of black and minority ethnicity deaths from COVID-19. In the first report, they basically allegedly suppressed the recommendations part of the report. So it sort of acknowledged the disproportionate deaths, but didn't offer any actionable things for the government and then there was a second leaked report which the government hadn't even acknowledged it was leaked to the BBC and again mm. it found that like that these deaths do at least in part derive from historic racism and and its effects and then again they had lots of very specific recommendations and those obviously haven't been haven't been implemented there's no sign that they are going to be implemented and the the report itself hasn't even been officially published yet. So th there's just no way of looking at this new commission, which is so incredibly vague, as anything other than a quite disingenuous attempt to to look like you're taking action, but really just to stall action. Hmm. Yeah, I thought one of the most interesting things that you wrote was that it gives the government an easy response when they're asked, inevitably, as they will be asked, about the issues raised by the Black Lives Matter protests over the next few days and weeks and, and that's the biggest frustration I don't know whether you find this reporting on policy as we both do but it's, the biggest frustration is when you ask a minister or you ask someone about a failure of policy and they say oh well I wouldn't want to second guess the recommendations of x review mm. and it's just so frustrating because it gives politicians a way of answering a question because it sounds like they're doing something like you say but actually it means that they avoid the question and often these reviews because they take time to put together, are only published once the sort of political salience of the issue, unfortunately, because of the way our news agenda works, has moved on. And it's sort of less interesting to journalists and it's less urgent for policymakers to do anything about it. 
And so whenever I hear that there's been a commission launched or a review or an independent inquiry, it kind of makes my heart sink because I just think, Mm -hmm. well, there goes that issue, you know, into the long grass, like you say. And actually, I've been looking into a number of the reviews mentioned by David Lammy Mm -hmm. and others that have come up into racial inequality in the UK. And there are so many that, you know, I don't want to bore listeners by listing them all on this podcast, but every single one gives a very thorough review of the landscape in terms of the discrimination that takes place in this country in whatever field that it's investigating. So the McGregor Smith review from 2017 looks into black and minority ethnic people in the workplace and finds that they've faced discrimination at every stage of their career and beforehand, you know, in work experience and education as well. Mm-hmm. And only last year, she and she's she's a conservative peer, she got up and said, Every single recommendation from her report still holds true today. And she was saying even two years on from doing that report, the prejudice that many face in the workplace hasn't changed. And and she, even as a Tory, was considering that quotas perhaps will be the will end up being the only way to make workplaces change. And so that's just one example. But every single one of these reports that I'm looking into, whether it's into the Windrush scandal or into, you know, the London riots, all sorts they always seem to have recommendations that are embraced by the government and the government always writes a very lengthy sort of response to, to the review's findings. Mm-hmm. And then you just look at what recommendations have been implemented and not much has happened. One of the outstanding ones is the McPherson report from 1999, which is obviously a sort of landmark occasion in British race relations when the Metropolitan Police were found to be institutionally racist in the death of Stephen Lawrence. And that had 67 of its 70 recommendations make changes within within two years of the report's publication. Mm-hmm. But still, we have the same problems now. You know, there's there's still disproportionate stop and search of, people, of black people. And BMA, BAME people were nearly 50% more likely to be arrested for breaking coronavirus laws than white people. So that's such a recent example. And so even with a sort of watershed report like the McPherson report, there are still so many problems identified in that report that persist today. It's so interesting. I mean, I sort of wonder if we have a sort of culture of of inquiries and reports that isn't terribly productive. I mean, I can't think of other ones, like aside from in racial inequalities, do you think, because I know you take a particular interest in this, do you think that there there's just a widespread problem of, of reviews and inquiries not being very productive? I think there is actually, because we had the Marmot review, like an update to the Marmot review into health inequalities, which I know that you also looked into. And that found so many horrendous health inequalities, mainly because of the impact of austerity between people who are from deprived backgrounds or live in deprived areas compared to their more affluent counterparts. And that's an example, you know, that was also a sort of very widely read and revered review but then you see 10 years on and I know 10 years isn't necessarily a particularly long time but it is for the people whose lives are affected by these issues and you see that those problems still persist so I do think in certain areas particularly those that maybe some in our administration and in our sort of political apparatus don't in for for areas that people don't identify with like poverty as well there never seems to be that much movement yeah I also wonder if it's a sort of problem, as you say, that these come out when the salience has slightly gone out of the issue. And also that a lot of the individual people responsible have moved on in a lot of cases. Like I think that with something like the Marmot Report, a lot of the 
like the conservative the people from within that conservative government at that time and responsible for those policies aren't in government anymore and we don't really have much of a culture of bringing ministers back to answer for decisions that they made while they had that particular brief and people move on so quickly that it's only if you can kind of catch people presiding over a current problem like with Amber Rudd and Windrush even though a lot of that stuff was actually like a legacy problem of Theresa May's it's only when you can kind of catch someone that you get direct accountability but if it if there's a big lag then it doesn't really happen yeah and I also think that in the legal world as well it it, it it's interesting about the lag because sometimes if there's not enough of a lag then sort of new kind of tick box knee jerk things are brought in in a response to a specific event or a specific disaster so I remember when I interviewed the former chief prosecutor for the northwest Nazir Afsal Mm -hmm. he was saying his worst phrase is lessons learned I didn't get managed to put this in the interview but he hates you know authority after authority organization organization after you know after certain disasters that we have learned lessons because he always thinks that those lessons that they've learned are, are too specific to that individual case and introduce you know new problems so the example he gave was the baby p case which his teams prosecuted at the time mm-hmm. and about you know the murder of children by carers and he said it introduced this whole new sort of tick box system for social workers and put people off the profession and so he was kind of warning against this you know every time there's a crisis or an emergency or an incident happens then we have these kind of we have to learn important lessons reports that result in things that are cursory or throwaway Mm. and it's interesting in in like in the wider coronavirus context as well people are pretty much certain that there will be an inquiry at some stage and are kind of covering Mm. their back slightly in in anticipation of it whereas maybe accountability as it's as it's ongoing is is less effective but actually this is slightly tangential but a thing I've been thinking about a lot while we're having all these discussions about about the conduct of the police and inquiries and reviews and so on is the police service in Northern Ireland just by because I'm from Belfast I think it's very interesting Mm. the way actual reforms of policing can come about so this is something I would want to look into more. But so the the former police service in Northern Ireland, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, was like a completely sectarian organisation. And like it, it's everyone's free to say that now, but like very few Catholics served in it. And it, it sort of participated in, in some ways in the discriminatory treatment of Catholics in Northern Ireland. And after the Troubles... It was based, like a, a commission looked into it. Lord Patton, who's also, you know, been in the news because he's the Chancellor of, of Oxford and isn't in favour of the road statue being taken down. And he's a, the former Commissioner of Hong Kong. So he's very relevant at the moment. But he, he led the review into the police service in Northern Ireland and saw its complete overhaul. I mean, it, it's basically a new organisation, which I think is maybe the crucial difference between you I mean you mentioned the McPherson report but maybe that's the difference between an existing organization implementing changes and then a complete overhaul which results in in the foundation of a completely new organization because I think like I I respect Mm. I mean all of the really really serious criticisms of sort of systemic racism within the Metropolitan Police but I think being Northern Irish my experience is so completely different because like the RUC Mm. were kind of instrumental in some of the more tricky moments of the troubles in a kind of negative way. 
but the modern day police service in Northern Ireland do sort of more community policing and they're like completely reflective of the community. And I think that certainly, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but my my experience of them as, as just an individual is that they do a really difficult job policing some quite like tri- tricky paramilitary activity in both communities and, and do quite a good job of that. You know, like when I think of the police, I, I sort of think in Northern Ireland, you know, they're the ones that dissident Republicans were shooting at when they accidentally shot Lyra McKee, the journalist. And so mm. I, I sort of, I think, I mean, I'm sure that there are, people can are free to write in with, with more examples if they want. But I mean, I'm sure there are examples of the of the police service in Northern Ireland not doing a good job. But I, I mean, I looked up, you know, if there were examples of incidents of racism from within the, the police service or reports, and I couldn't actually find any. It just just like them responding to to incidents of racism, and I think that's just an interesting example of mm. of maybe where an organisation can be genuinely improved. Because I I don't think again people are free to write in, but I don't think that the Catholic community in Northern Ireland has a serious problem with the PSNI the way it did with the RUC back in the day. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to the New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. It's not really the same with only one person. (laughs) (laughs) No, I know, but thank you for soldiering through it. (laughs) We've had a number of questions on the Gender Recognition Act, so we're just going to roll them into one. There have been reports that the UK government is scrapping its plans to allow people to change their legal gender by self-identifying as male or female, which is what the update to the... Gender Recognition Act would bring. I think Amnesty has said that it would mean that the UK would plummet in global LGBT equality rankings. How true are these reports? I mean, is it the end of, of that that reform? I think it might be. I think this, this is such a tricky issue to talk about or to write about without alienating some people. I mean, everyone who supports trans rights would say that this is a, a very bad move and, and a step backwards for, for these rights. Because basically, like the planned reform, Theresa May commissioned a sort of review into this, you know, during her premiership, and mm. the the findings of that have still not been published. But in anticipation of them being finally published, it was leaked to several papers over the weekend that they will be scrapping these plans, which would just, as you said, would have just meant that people could legally change their gender without a long wait Mm -hmm. or without sort of medical approval and so on. I mean, that wasn't the only proposed reform of the Gender Recognition Act, but it was the sort of the most controversial one. 
I think that there have been some sort of misunderstandings around it. Even I read the Daily Mail's report of it and I just find it really, really striking the way different issues are being conflated when they're not really the same thing. The minister responsible for this uh, is Liz Truss. She took on the brief, I think, after Penny Mordaunt was sacked as Defence Secretary. And Penny Mordaunt was like, really in favour of these reforms. Her twin brother is gay and she's like really, really into LGBTQ rights, as well as in other ways being a, a, quite, a quite sort of typical Tory. She's like considered like very supportive of these issues and has like a very good connection with certain LGBTQ charities for that reason. Yeah, she was very in favour of it. And then the brief was given to Liz Truss. And as it was explained in the Daily Mail article I read, Dominic Cummings gave her the brief because he knew that she is not in favour of children transitioning or being hormones too young. So she would sort of kill the act. And I think that that's, that's a really small example of it being totally misunderstood because obviously the ability to legally change your gender has nothing to do with medically transitioning. Mm. I think that that's one of the things that's been really misunderstood that, I mean, people can still have their opinions on this, but it's it's important to be clear about what we're talking about. So the, the Gender Recognition Act would just change, would make it easier and less invasive for you if you were trans to have the gender that you prefer recognised in law. But the the medical process to transition would stay completely the same like it doesn't mean that suddenly the the con the consultations that you would have with doctors or the weight or anything like that would be in any way different so you know it it kind of is meaningless from the perspective of of children transitioning or anything like that I suppose it has been very specific reforms to this act that's what this is isn't it that's what the debate is around but it has become like you say a sort of rhetorical kind of lightning rod for a whole world of concerns that some people have about young people transitioning and the sort of whole very incendiary online rhetoric of trans rights sceptics. And that's all sort of merged into this, this becoming such a hot and controversial topic, whereas actually it's sort of quite, in a way, almost quite a prosaic legal update, which happens in, in, in other countries as well. It wasn't necessarily a sort of pioneering legislative change really but it's taken on this this kind of status as a as a lightning rod issue yeah I think that's right yeah and what some people would describe as sort of the epicenter of the culture wars as as they're described where you're sort of either on one tribe or the other whereas actually like you say it's quite a narrow thing isn't it that doesn't touch on all sorts of other aspects of of the you know usual trans rights rows that are rehearsed online i think that's right and i think probably that not just because of the proposed reforms being scrapped but i think the way you were saying about how this has become a much bigger culture war i think that's probably the biggest argument for this being a big step back in terms of the human rights of trans people because trans people's rights to be legally recognised, their right to exist and to have rights and to be respected by their chosen gender in the eyes of the state. I mean, you know, that happened in 2004 with the Gender Recognition Act and the sky didn't fall mm. in. And then those rights were enshrined in the Equality Act of 2010 alongside protections for same-sex spaces, which do provide I think with quite a lot of sensitivity do provide the caveats that would be necessary to make sure that in particular tricky circumstances around for example 
you know, same-sex space is like a domestic abuse refuge or something, if there are non-trans users of that service who would feel uncomfortable with the presence of a trans person, there are provisions Mm. which allow for that service to make separate provisions for the trans person, for example, you know, sort of taking care not to be prejudiced or discriminatory or you know, nasty to to a trans person who's trying to access support for domestic abuse, but to also respect the other users who might be uncomfortable with that. You know, the, in the Equality Act, there are are already all of those provisions mm. done quite sensitively because I think there's a there's sometimes considered a bit of a tension between gender reassignment being a protected characteristic and sex being a protected characteristic. But there are the provisions in that which do set those out quite clearly and sensitively. So, yeah, as you say, the GRA reforms were just to sort of tighten those up and to further those rights. Because at the moment, if you want to just have your identity, your your pronouns recognised by the state and to, to have the sort of legal sanction to be able to call yourself she or he, even if that differs from the gender you were assigned at birth, it just makes that a bit less of an invasive process. It doesn't take quite as long. It isn't quite so hostile. I think people find that difficult to understand, but I think, you know, it would be a bit like if a gay person said that, you know, they had to sort of jump through lots and lots of hoops to prove that they were gay and, you know, had to provide authorities with um, lots of details of their sexual history and undergo sort of psychological assessments and so on to to have their own identity affirmed when they know who they are. Mm. So yeah, the, the GRA was just to sort of tighten that up, but it's become a huge culture war. Some aspects of it have been quite misunderstood and it actually basically the main impact is that the protections around, for example, like gender reassignment being a protected characteristic are going to be slightly eroded and the protections around same sex spaces are going to be massively shorn up in a way that, you know, according to the current Equality Act would, you know, be kind of arguably discriminatory. But that's the plan that Liz Truss has in place. Again, if people know more about this, please write in because I find it interesting and I can't find any more detail on this. But at the moment, there aren't really any laws saying who can use which bathroom, for example, like the male and female signs mm-hmm. on doors are just sort of that's just totally arbitrary. And, that's, you know, at the moment, there's, there, there are no laws to underpin that. That's just custom. And it means that, you know, trans women have been using women's bathrooms the whole time <laughs> with, you know, kind of without incident. But now it's going to be possibly the law that Liz Truss wants to bring in eventually to to shore up those as same-sex spaces that are protected. So for the first time, only people with quote-unquote female biology would be able to use women's toilets and vice versa, which I think could arguably become quite invasive and nasty, not just to trans people, but to sort of people who don't necessarily come across as terribly feminine for example I think that you know like it's a sort of weird kind of genitalia policing which might result Mm. in this kind of strange thing where we'll be policing all the more thoroughly who can enter these spaces because I mean you can't check someone's genitalia I mean it'll be based on on sort of quite arbitrary perceptions of 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 what an appropriate woman would look like and I think that's yeah that's kind of dangerous I think so for those reasons as you say Amnesty International have described this as quite a step back and I think it might be. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan and my colleague Alva Ray. 
We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. <laughs> <laughs>